So we're in Ephesians chapter 3 tonight, and we're kind of skipping a little bit. Paul is in chapter 3 at the beginning talking about being the apostle to the Gentiles. And if you would go back and think about what we've studied so far in this letter, he's really set up this beautiful theological background. All the blessings that we get. Chapter 1, we sell sort of... Uh, top-down God's eye view of salvation, right? Before the foundation of the world, He chose us in Christ, that we would be adopted into His family as sons, and it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. Chapter 2, as we began, we saw the more personal view, more what our experience was like. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were simply indulging the desires of our mind and going with the pleasures of the flesh, living for ourselves. But it said there that not only were we dead, we were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And in the middle of that, in the middle of a dark, dark time, when we were dead, it said Christ made us, or God made us alive together with Christ. And as we begin to understand salvation, we saw it was a free gift. He made us alive. He resurrected us in a spiritual sense. He made us reborn. He regenerated us, all those good terms, to say that we're now found in Christ and salvation is secure, and it was all by grace through faith, and he said it was not of works. And I just feel like I keep repeating this so over and over again in these services, that listen, we are not saved by our own merits. We're saved by his grace and his gift, and, and praise the Lord for that. Last week we saw almost a different version of salvation, right? Just a little bit different explanation. He wasn't just saving us as individuals, He's creating a new people for himself. And so there is, he has torn down the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. We are now one people, one church, one body of Christ. And so that's where we find ourselves today celebrating and thinking about all the good that God has done for us. So we're going to pick up today in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word for us tonight, and it's beautiful. He starts with a prayer, and, and I have continued to emphasize since we've been here I want you to pray for five, what is it, believers, all right, we want five Christians, five people perhaps in this church that you would pray for every day, all right, and then I want you to pray for five, what, unbelievers, right, so five believers, five unbelievers, just start simple, it's just a simple thing, tonight there's a great example of what to pray, and I've already given you on another night a, a list of Paul's prayers and different prayers from the scripture that we could pray for one another. But I think this is a good one. He starts out at the beginning um, in verse 14. He says, For this reason, 
thinking about all that He's provided for us, all the salvation, all that He has done, He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, it's interesting here that the normal custom of the day was actually to pray standing up. And he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And it was an, an act of Paul's submission and his reverence to God. He recognized this isn't him. We are completely dependent on the Lord. And so he, as he prays, it says that he, he bowed his knees before the Father. And uh, here, notice it does say God is described as the Father. He addresses him as Father. What do we talk about this morning? In, in church. Remember, this is interactive. You can't actually talk back on Sunday night, okay? And uh, uh, my children apparently answer questions out loud during the Sunday morning service, and, and uh, I was impressed that my five-year-old, who's currently running out the door, um, I was really impressed this morning that he answered the right question, the right answer at the right time. So he must have at least been listening, right? We talked about God as Father, though, didn't we? And he was a father, and he's an impartial judge, and we are the obedient children who will give an account to him. But the great thing about that judgment is that he is a good father who's just trying to steer us in the right direction, and it's not about a judgment of, Let's, let me cast you into hell. But he's there saying, be holy as I am holy. That's what we talked about this morning. And uh, we have this good father. Well, here we address him as father again. And I want to think about what does it mean? Well, Father is a term of intimacy, but it's also one of authority and dignity. That if he's our father, he has, he's the one that sets the rules over us. A father ruled over his family or clan, but he also looked out for the good of his children and family members. He had a job, and that job was to protect them. Paul is approaching our good and powerful Heavenly Father. You guys know we have a good and benevolent God who does indeed love us and care for us. Not only that, is he, he doesn't just describe him as our father. He describes him as the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, names were viewed as important because names back then, they had significance. They had meaning. And so when we find biblical names, if you look up those words, they often describe the very character of the person we're reading about, but they were thought to give the true nature or inner being of a person, and so a name again had a meaning. I, it was interesting for me when we lived in Turkey; all the names had meanings, and a lot of times they would come out of the Quran or they would come out of you know some Arabic word or even if it was a Turkish word, they would have a meaning. Oh, my name means grace. My name means this or that, and they would ask me, well, "What does your name mean?" And I'd stop. My name is my name is Clay, and. And they're kind of, what does that mean, like mud, or, or what are we talking? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you know, and they're like, well, why'd your parents name you that? Well, you know, I asked them one time. They have no idea why they named me that. <laughs> it's just something they thought of, but, you know, and they're like, well. So I'm like, well, my name's actually Clayton. And they're like, what does that mean? It's like, it's an old English clay farm. You know, that's all I know about the meaning of my name. My brother's name is Chad, and um, you know how they got that name? My mom's a big Elvis fan, and, and in one of his movies, his name was Chad. So there you go. So that's how my brother got his name. And uh, the Turks are like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, if we went back to biblical times, guess what? They would probably go, you named him what? You remember 
uh, with John the Baptist, there is quite some consternation and frustration over what his name should be because um, Elizabeth says, well, his name is John, and everybody's like, no, that can't be right. Zechariah, what's his name? His name is John. But they couldn't believe it because he didn't name after himself or another family name, right? Well, that's what we are dealing with. We have the God who, from every, says, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Names were important. But even more, the act of naming something or someone was an act of dominion over them. I want you to think back to the garden of Adam and Eve, with Adam and Eve. All right? God names Adam. Adam names all the creatures of the earth. And he named Eve and was placed in a role of responsibility over her. God is the one who is ruling the earth. And every family gets its name from him. Uh, but we see, in, again, we see that uh, Adam and Eve were to rule over God's world as, as representatives as they named all those animals. We see in Adam the naming of animals, his dominion, of, though, of course, under God. But it was God himself who named man. It was God who named Abraham's family, who created both Jew and Gentile alike that we've studied. It doesn't matter what family you're from, God did create you. All men find their beginnings in him. God is the creator of all living beings. He's the sovereign creator. His power is absolute, and he can answer Paul's prayer. And that's really, he's telling you, look, I've just told you the dividing walls have been torn down. There's no... Jew, there's no Greek, there's no Scythian, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female. In Christ, when it comes to salvation, we are all in the same boat. And that's the God who he's praying to. That's the God he's appealing to. I'm going to the one who created all things, who has the authority and the power to actually answer my prayer. That's who Paul goes to. Now, what does it, is it that he asks in this prayer? Look at verse 16. He asks this first, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So the first part of this is he prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. What is the inner man? The soul? Yeah. How else might we describe that? What was it? Spirit, okay. Yeah, so in our spirit, in our conscious maybe, maybe in our brain these days we could describe it. We want to be strengthened so we understand, strengthened with power. Maybe it's heart. All right, we could come up with all kind of ways, but this is the inner man, the spirit, the who we really are, right? We're more than these the, the bag of bones that we're in, right? We're more than that. We are spirit. And he says, we want to be, I want you to be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man. What they needed to be made strong. The church at Ephesus needed to be made strong. They needed to be given real power. So in chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, he prayed for them to be given wisdom and knowledge to be able to, to understand God's power toward them. That's what he prayed there. Now he's praying that God would give them that power to make them strong in their heart with his power. The power is to be given to them according to, he says, according to the riches of his glory. How much glory belongs to God? All of it, right? 
So if we were to describe the quantity of God's glory and the riches of his glory, how could we describe it? It's not finite, right? There's no limit to it. All the glory is his. And, and so if he gives us his power according to the riches of his glory, how much has he given us? A lot, right? I mean, this is, it's a beautiful passage. Like I'm, He's going to strengthen them in their inner man, and he's going to do it according to the riches of his glory. Look at verse at the end there that says, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Glory in the scripture is often described as God's radiance or his splendor. It begins, uh, it brings with it a sense of God's perfection, of his character and his works. It's often used in scripture to convey his power, that we see his glory, the riches of his glory are inexhaustible. He has ample supply of power to give to the believers. He's not just running out. He's not running on fumes and thinking, well, I can give a little bit of power to Bobby. I can give a little bit of power to Mr. Eugene. I can give a little bit of power to somebody else. He can give everybody all that they need. And Paul is praying, I want you to be strengthened in the inner man. And guess what I want you guys to be praying for me? That he would strengthen me in the inner man. That he would strengthen me in spirit. That I would be a man that could stand, be steadfast and follow after him. And isn't that kind of a prayer that we can pray for one another? And it's a, it's a good example in the text. It's not complicated. It's not like a magic formula. But I need to pray. That, you know, I really pray that, that God would strengthen Miss Diane. And make her strong. And no matter what comes, he would strengthen her in the inner man. Because we never know what's coming in life, does it? And I feel like we sometimes, we wait on the emergency to happen to start praying for one another. We wait on it to happen. And we do that with all of life, really. We wait. But that's why I'm telling you, just pick five people and pray this prayer for them this week. Just say, you know what? I'm going to pray for Tanya. I'm just picking on different people tonight. But we gotta, we got to pray because we don't know, you know, potty training's hard. Work is hard. You know, sometimes uh, Josh is difficult. <laughs> so we need to pray that God will strengthen her, right? In her inner being, in her soul, and make her strong, give her the power that she needs to get through life, that the Spirit would be there and indwell in her and work through her, right? So why is it that we need this power according to the text, though? Look at verse 17. I want you to st he strengthen us with power in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Stop there for a minute. So the reason he prays that we be strengthened in the inner man is so that Christ will dw can dwell in our hearts. Now, when we pray, we like to say we, we accept Jesus in our heart. I don't think that's the best way to describe it, but listen, we say it, right? And we do believe that when we believe, we play, have placed our faith in Jesus, call on him, ask us to save him, he comes and dwells within us, right? The Holy Spirit is in us right now, right? God is very present in this room in each of our lives. But what we really want, we don't want just him kind of there and we just kind of listen sometimes. We want Christ to make his habitation in us. 
that his permanent dwelling place, that he's there, not just sometimes God doesn't have a, Jesus doesn't have a timeshare in our hearts where, you know, once every year, maybe every two years, I'm going to show up and cash in my week with Miss Pat. We want Christ to dwell there, right? And so we need to be strengthened in inner man so that we would recognize that he's there. And I think there's, there's being filled with the Spirit, but I think there's times where we do quench the Spirit. And there's times where God is there and, and we push off the blessings. But I think it, it, when he strengthens us, when we walk with him, we get more of those blessings. There's reason in John 15, he talks about abiding in him, remaining in him, making our dwelling place in him. And so we see that there in the text. So the, the reason we pray that we'll be strengthened, so that Christ would dwell in our hearts. And man, don't, don't you want that for yourself? That God, I want you to strengthen. I want you to dwell in my heart that I would be full of you. That I would know you and walk with you throughout my week. Isn't that what we want? I just want to love you more than I did. Than I do, and I betray myself with my own actions. Guys, I want you to pray that I would that Christ would dwell in my heart. And I want you to pray that for one another. Christ has already indwelt the believer. It's been we already talked about how he lives in us. Nevertheless, the desire here is for Christ's continual presence. In our inner man, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our will. We need Christ to be present and central to our being. He is at the center of our lives. He exercises his rule and will over all that we are and do. As we trust him, he makes our hearts his home. The more the Spirit empowers them and us, the more like Christ we become as he rules in us. The result of all this, look at verse at the end of verse 17, is that we would be rooted and grounded in love. One, one writer said, Love is the soil in which believers are rooted and will grow the foundation upon which they are built. Here the agape in view is the love of God revealed in Christ and poured out into His people's hearts by the Spirit. We want Christ to empower us to love one another. We want to be rooted and grounded in love. What are we studying in 1 Peter this morning? Be holy as I am holy. What was the command he gave them in the text? Fervently love one another from the heart. And all those, remember again, that was the, the second greatest commandment, wasn't it? Love God, love one another. Here we're praying, listen, I want Christ to dwell in their heart, and I want them to be rooted and grounded in love. That when, that when Bobby goes through his week this week, when he thinks about being the chairman of the deacons and, and for another four years, and when he thinks about that, I want him to think about you guys with love. That, that where he thinks about the best for you guys, what would be the best for a Forest Heights Baptist Church? Another four years. <laughs> I'm just picking on Bobby, but, but you guys understand what we mean, right? Is it, it's just not easy to love, and there's a reason the Scripture keeps calling us back to this. There's a reason Paul is praying. I, he's, he stops to pray, look, I want you to be strengthened in your inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart, so that you'll be rooted and grounded in love. You understand the love of Christ, because He is showing it to you, and He's dwelling in you, and now you understand, 
I need to sacrificially love my brothers and sisters in Christ, even when I don't like them that much some days, right? I'm sure there's days where my wife's like, I don't like that guy. And uh, she's, she's having a good time back there. Listen, love is hard. It's a commitment. And it's something that we have to depend on God to do in us. And we have to seek a supernatural love. And that's what he's praying for here. Verse 18, as we get rooted and grounded in love, look what it gives us. What are we able to do? We're able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So as we get this, what, what we understand is we begin to love one another, and as Christ dwells in our heart, we begin to understand the true depth of his love. Now, I've heard sermons where people break this down, and they talk about, well, this is what he means by the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and they come up with these really weird points for each one. You know what it's trying to say? We cannot imagine the full dimensions of Christ's love. It says here that it surpasses knowledge. What we're supposed to understand is Christ's love is infinite, just like his power is. And his love is absolute, and he loves us at all times, and he loves us even when we were ungodly, and even when we didn't deserve to be loved, he loved us anyway. And so we are able, as we, as we grow in him and he dwells in us, we become able to understand more and more the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that we'll be full up, filled up to all the fullness of God. Isn't that beautiful? That as, we, as Christ lives in us and as we are empowered, we understand more his love and so therefore can love one another even better. And as I think about being motivated to be holy as I am holy, it always comes back to, if I love God, I'm going to be motivated to do that. And that's why I really think whenever somebody gets caught in sin, and every one of us have been through periods of life where we sin. Take, let's, let's give it a simple example, okay? Say somebody gets out of church, and we don't know why, but for whatever reason, they don't come a week, two weeks. You know, these things kind of start taking root, and before you know it, it's been a year since you've seen somebody. You know what they need to hear? The gospel. And I'm not saying it because they need to get saved. I'm saying it because they need to be reminded there is a God who has poured out his grace and love and kindness on them. And so when we go to them, we remind them of those things. And yes, we do urge them to come back. And there are warnings in the scripture about forsaking the assembly together. There's warnings about drifting away. And so we need to give those warnings, but I always think you need to start with, this is the grace of God, and He's done all this for you, and that's why we come back. Like, even when you look at spiritual, at disciplining people in the church, right? When you look at Matthew, and you start to look at these passages, and you go to them one-on-one, -on -one, you know what the object always is? Redemption. It's always, I want to see my brother restored. It's never I want to condemn them. And are sometimes people condemned by their own actions? They sure are. There are people that, that prove over and over again, hey, we weren't believers. And there's other people that will fall away and choose to continue in sin. But our purposes, when we confront a believer, when we confront anybody over sin, better be redemption. 
because that's what Christ has offered to them. And he's saying, look, you need to come back. And so we, we begin to understand how great the love of Christ is. And we have to continue to grow in our love for one another. God's love in Christ provides the motivating power that enables us to love one another. As we get into the commands, and just like in 1 Peter today, we begin to kind of pick up some commands at the end. When you get to chapter 4 in Ephesians, go ahead and look down there. When you get into chapter 4 and 5 and 6, you're going to start getting... I'll just kind of skip over to verse chapter 5. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. All right, be imitators of me. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Uh, over and over, we're going we're to hear this, put, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Uh, let, there must not be filthiness or silly talk. There's going to be directions to how husbands and wives interact with one another, how children are supposed to interact. In other words, when we get to those practical commands, you know what our motivation is? The love of Christ. What he's already done for us, the grace that he has lavished upon us. And so we, again, instead of coming to the scripture and going, it is a burden. I can't believe God is telling me I can't have what I want again because we approach it that way. When we come with love for him and when Christ has strengthened us in the inner man, it is a joy to follow him. It's a joy to run the race that, and the course that he's put us on. And it's a joy even when we go through times of suffering. But if we look at his obligation, if we come to it as law, we just leave downhearted every single time. And you know what Satan wants you to do? Legalism. Come back. You, you know you're not good enough. You know you missed a year of church. No sense in you going back now. You don't think he whispers that in people's ears? He does. That's a natural human inclination for us. We always go back to the law. All this that we've read in Ephesians chapter 3 should conclude by empowering us to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Again, we see the dimensions of his love. We don't look for hidden meanings. We may never fully understand how much Christ actually loved, for, loved us. It says it surpasses knowledge. The good news is, church, we have all eternity to figure that out. All eternity to, for us to be there to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's how it talks about it uh, in earlier in Ephesians. And so we see there are just so many blessings there. There will always be new depths to Christ's love to understand as we get to know Him better. Nevertheless, God empowers us to begin to, to be able to understand Christ's love. That's the strengthening. I want you to be able to just be able to start understanding God's love. And that is supernaturally a praise. God does that in our heart through the Spirit. He helps us to understand. So far in Ephesians, we've been given insight into God's love, His eternal plan of redemption, the sacrifice of Christ to redeem us, His bringing us into His family. But there's a personal element to knowing and understanding the love of Christ. That we're in a relationship with Him. One commentator says this, and the implication in the light of the following words is that we cannot be as spiritually mature as we should be unless we're empowered by God to grasp 
the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. We can't be who we're meant to be as Christians unless we begin to understand the full depths and the full dimensions of the love of Christ. We have to begin to understand that and it is spiritually appraised so that we would be filled up with all the fullness of God. When the apostle desires that his readers may be strengthened through the Spirit and experience the effects of Christ's indwelling, so they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, he is praying that they may be all that God wants them to be. That is, be, that, is that they would be spiritually mature, since God himself, Christ himself is the standard, and this means being perfect as he is perfect, being holy as he is holy. Paul is praying for them to be empowered so they would mature in Christ. And we're going to see that in the next chapter. And so that's where we're going to leave off tonight. Any thoughts or questions? Remember, this is you can interact tonight. And so I will open that. That's a dangerous thing to do on a Sunday night, especially when we're live on Facebook. Uh, but I'll ask you if you have questions or thoughts tonight, something that stands out to you. Well, if not, as we go into our time of invitation, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful prayer, this example that we find in the text. I thank you that, that Paul was faithful to pray for so many believers around the world that he interacted with at the time. God, I pray that you would help us to pray for one another here at Forest Heights Baptist Church. Father, I pray that we would dream together of people coming to this church and what it would look like to reach this community, the possibilities of growing here, not just in numbers, but, Father, I pray that the people that are here would grow in maturity and love of the Lord. Father, the reality is that, that church splits and divisions are a great sin that happen far too often. But, Father, I pray that we would grow through the Spirit, that we'd be strengthened in the inner man. I pray that we would begin to understand the love of Christ, that he would dwell in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to love one another as Christ has loved us. Father, convict us tonight. Use us, and Father, I pray that this week we'd be faithful to pray this prayer for one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.